Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Sherry Quinn. Now McCann searches for the world's largest reptile in the Nat Geo Wild television series Biggest and Baddest. He has made it his mission to track down animals that have come in conflict with humans around the world. He hopes to shed light on the dilemmas the animals face. In the process of filming the series, he waded through murky waters in the swamps of Venezuela to catch giant anacondas. He followed dangerous predators like the Royal Bengal tiger into the jungles of Nepal and wrestled with deadly saltwater crocodiles in Australia's Northern Territory. In addition to his TV work, he is also just about to complete his PhD in biology at Cardiff University in the United Kingdom. McCann joins us on the program to discuss the series, his scientific research, and conservation. The biggest and baddest is a show about the most conspicuously large and dangerous animals out there in the world, all of which are embroiled in some form of human-animal conflict. So they either affect people by eating us or by having some form of economic effect on us. But each one of those species is also severely affected by that relationship with people as well, such that there is a conservation situation where these species actually need our help in some way. So Biggest and Baddest is a show which tells the story of these human-animal conflicts from both the perspective of the species involved and the people affected by that conflict. So what is it like to capture and hold a creature such as an anaconda? Catching an anaconda is one of the most insane experiences of my life, but also just, just hugely exhilarating as well. So the first time I ever caught one was actually a few, few years ago when I was, I was doing some research on, a, on an animal called the giant otter, which lives, lives in South America. And, and I'd heard lots of stories about anacondas, sort of horrible, horrible stories about people being, being caught and killed. I'd never, never actually seen one myself. And my dreams were constantly punctuated with, with dreams of anacondas. It's kind of strange. I, I would lie in bed at night dreaming about the moment when I'd first see one and perhaps, perhaps have the opportunity to catch one. So, so when, I, when I first did, it, the reality exceeded all of those dreams. It really did. They are strong in a way that's hard to describe, just unbelievably powerful. And they're, they're, they constantly fight when you're, when you're trying to hold them, as, as, you, as you can well imagine, because they are being restrained. So they... They, they do resist that restraint. They're, they're so incredibly powerful. You have to be very, very careful not to get bitten and not to get wrapped up by some of their coils as well because they, they have quite a few weapons. It's not just their teeth. But the thing you've really got to watch out for is, is them throwing a coil around your neck or something like that. So it's, it's a very, very precarious operation when you are doing this. And you're having to be as gentle as you possibly can with a snake for fear of hurting it while being sufficiently strong so that it doesn't get out of your grasp. It's quite a fine balance to, to, to tread. Have you been injured by an anaconda or any other creatures? No, I'm quite lucky. So I really try and pride myself in, in not getting bitten by stuff. And I try and minimize the amount of time I spend handling animals just because it increases the stress of them when you do handle them. But when, when it is necessary to handle, handle animals, to measure them or to put on a GPS collar or whatever it is, then I do so as, as rapidly and as safely as possible just to minimize the possibility of myself getting hurt and to minimize the possibility of, of the animal getting hurt. So very fortunately, I've, I've, I've never really been bitten badly by a snake. I've, I've had a, a, a very small non-venomous snake nibble on my thumb once, but that, was, that wasn't really a problem. But I've, been, I've done my best not to get bitten um, just because it's not a good idea. 
<laughs> if, you, if, you, if you're too cavalier and you let these things get hold of you, then, then yeah, catastrophic things could happen. I have to say, rattlesnakes are quite abundant, it seems like, in certain parts of the western U.S., in Utah also. And uh, have you ever worked with rattlesnakes? I've never seen a wild rattlesnake, and I've spent a lot of time in rattlesnake country. I've been to Utah, I've been to Arizona, and lots of parts of Central and South America where neotropical rattlesnakes abound, and I've still never seen one. I've heard one rattle. I've heard one rattle its tail, but I didn't actually see the individual. And it's one of my aims in life is to have the opportunity to work with a rattlesnake sometime in the future. Okay, well, if you come to Utah again, let us know, because we can certainly probably find one for you. <laughs> Fantastic. It's a date. So I understand that Central and South America are, are some of the most, or maybe the most dangerous places in the world, in the jungles, in terms of creatures and, and insects, and animals and bugs. And uh, if you could talk about your work in Central America and why that is such a hostile place. Central America... Is, is hostile in terms of the animals that are there, of course. So there's very, very high densities of, of venomous snake and of poisonous spiders and that type of stuff. But then there's also quite a lot of civil disturbance. And Honduras, where I did my PhD, actually has the highest murder rate in the world. And that's a really unfortunate statistic because the country is beautiful. It's got fabulous biodiversity and it deserves to have a lot of tourism and a lot of ecotourism because it's got exactly the same wonderful biodiversity as Costa Rica does. But unfortunately, it's got this terrible reputation for violence because there is such a, a high rate of, of, of domestic and, and drug-related violence in the country. Now, I've been lucky enough to work in some of the most remote parts of Honduras where people really don't get to, and to see some fabulous animals. And working with venomous snakes in those places was, was, was one of my highlights. But I've also picked up a couple of travelers along the way, so a couple of bot fly I'm not sure whether you've come across botflies. So botfly is a fly that catches a mosquito and then lays an egg on its face, which is an incredibly nasty thing to do to the mosquito, as you can imagine. But the mosquito then is released and flies away and then lands on a mammal, such as myself, where it bites me and does what a mosquito normally does. But the heat from my body encourages the little botfly egg to turn into a maggot, which then burrows into your skin, and then it grows by eating you. And I've picked up a couple of those along the way, which have been interesting little travelers to have with me as I've been traveling around Central America. What are the major conservation issues that you see are in Central America and Honduras? Yeah, the, the most pressing conservation issue in Central America is deforestation and human overpopulation. So Honduras, where I did my PhD, has an annual legal deforestation rate of over 2% of its forest per year which is pretty, pretty high. And there's an al almost equivalently large illegal deforestation rate linked to the drug trade and various other illegal activities, meaning that Honduras is losing almost 5% of its remaining forest every single year. That is just completely unsustainable. When you've got large numbers of, of endangered species living in these forests, just getting cramped into smaller and smaller areas, and unfortunately, hand in hand with the deforestation, goes poaching, illegal hunting of wildlife. So species such as the Baird's tapir, which I did my PhD on, and jaguar and other hugely charismatic animals are being driven to extinction by completely unsustainable rates of logging and, and poaching, all driven by very, very high rates of human population expansion. Yeah, I, I don't know if you've been to Paraguay. I, I spent some time in the Embarcadu Reserve there, and, uh, one of the last major chunks of the 
Atlantic rainforest. Have you been to any of the rainforest areas in Paraguay? I've never been to Paraguay, so I'm very jealous of you, you having been there. I've spent quite a lot of time in, in Venezuela and Guyana and Brazil and Bolivia um, in, in rainforests there that, that are suffering similar threats to those in Central America. So deforestation and poaching, all linked with um, agricultural expansion. Yeah, it's exactly the same issues. And there, the jaguar is also a very revered and mythical creature in the forest there, which is being devastated. And uh, do you know what state the jaguar population is in? Yeah, in Honduras is a really critical point on what we call the Paseo Pantera. So, so, so the the, um, the path of the cat of the the path of the jaguar. So you may have come across the Mesoamerican Biological Corridor, which is a series of national parks and areas of forest that essentially link Mexico with, with Colombia. And this is seen as incredibly important because it allows the passage of, of animals such as jaguars and tapirs and many other animals consistently through those countries so, so that there can be a, a sharing of genetic material between different populations so they're not going to go extinct because of inbreeding and things. But throughout Central America and Honduras is absolutely no exception to that. This Paseo Pantera, this, this, this corridor of, of biodiversity and of forest is being cut apart by the agricultural frontier zone just expanding into the native forest by new towns popping up and by, by illegal deforestation and legal deforestation. So populations of jaguar are being split, split apart at a very, very rapid rate, meaning that they're much more likely to suffer from the deleterious effects of inbreeding and much more likely to be, to be poached because it's so much easier to hunt something in a, in a small area of forest than it is in a large area of forest. So although the population of jaguar in Honduras is, is relatively healthy at the moment, the situation is only getting worse and worse. Okay. Sorry to hear about that. Do you feel more threatened by humans there than other animals? I was incredibly lucky in Honduras that I was never once threatened by people, even, even though in many of the villages I was working in, people wear, wear pistols and a bandera of, of, of bullets, or bandolier of bullets, just, just during their day. So going about their normal daily activities, they'll have one or two pistols on a holster with, with a bandolier of bullets. It's a pretty crazy place in but I was never once threatened. I, I, I was only met with, with incredible intrigue. I think people couldn't really understand why on earth uh, a funny-looking guy from, from the UK wanted to come to Honduras to go and search for tapir droppings in the deep parts of their forests. So instead, instead of trying to rob me, people were just really perplexed as to what on earth it was I was doing. So the main threats I was, I was coming across daily were, were from venomous snakes because there's such a high population in, in Honduras, which is which I loved. I, I absolutely loved having that many snakes there. But inevitably, when, I spent, when you spend that amount of time around venomous snakes, something is going to go wrong. And one of the students who was working on, on my PhD research with me was, was bitten by a venomous snake and, and had to be evacuated by, by the U.S. Air Force, by Black Hawk helicopter, which is quite a dramatic, dramatic event. How did it turn out? Turned out pretty well. So about one third of venomous snake bites do not actually involve any active envenomation. So the snake will bite you, but won't actually pump you with any venom. Because venom is a very, very expensive substance for snakes to make. It takes a lot of time and a lot of, a lot of energy, a lot of resources in order to create venom. So, so they, they are quite careful about how they dish it out. And the young student with me, a guy called Andrew, was incredibly lucky that the snake that bit him didn't actually envenomate at all. So 
he was whisked away to hospital and put under observation, but allowed out after two days with, with zero symptoms. So very, very lucky boy. Oh, good to hear. I wanted to ask you about your research and on, I believe it's the, is it the Baird Taper, the, one of the rarest mammals in Honduras? Yeah, one of the rarest in Central America. Could you describe what you're working on with the tapir and uh, why you chose that creature? Of course. So my PhD was on the conservation status of Baird Tapir in Honduras and what conservation measures we are implementing in order to try and halt the decline in, that, in this population. So the main reason I wanted to work on, on this species was because it is a charismatic endangered large mammal. That, that was my criteria for, for looking for a PhD. It had to be an interesting looking species, something that I could feel a great affection for. And it had to be a large mammal and I wanted it to be endangered because I wanted to try and actually have some positive impact on the conservation of, of a species. And endangered species are the ones that most need our help. The thing that then really sealed the deal for me with Baird's tapir is that my mum's maiden name is Baird. So I had the fantastic opportunity to do a PhD on my mum's tapir, which I thought was just a, a really nice thing to do. So I spent about a year in total, just under a year, traipsing around the jungles of, of Honduras, looking for tracks and signs of Baird's tapir in order to try and figure out where they are in the country and what's happening to the population. And lamentably, what I discovered was that the population is quite rapidly being driven towards extinction as a result of the combined effects of rampant deforestation and unsustainable levels of poaching. And what would you say their role is in the ecosystem, the Baird tapir? They are major habitat modifiers, is how we describe it in ecology. So Baird's tapir is about 300 kilograms, so 600-pound animal. So it's a very, very big animal. And it eats a lot of fruits and, and other types of plant matter. And then it deposits all those, the seeds from those fruits all around the forest. So they're incredibly important in the germination of, of a lot of trees. And just by being browsers, so that they, they, they browse leaves, they also have a very important modifying effect on the structure of the forest. Not only that, but they provide food for jaguar and pumas and a few other animals, very, very few other animals, but a few other animals. And they in turn, by then depositing all their, their dung around the forest, give a huge amount of food to dung beetles and so many other animals that live off the dung of, of large mammals as well. So they're very, very important habitat modifiers. They seem like a relatively tame creature for you <laughs> to work with. Are they exciting at all for you? Um, yeah, good, good question. <laughs> um, I suppose when, when I was younger, I'd kind of maybe imagine doing a PhD on crocodiles or something. And there's very little risk of ever being attacked by a tapir unless you're doing something very untoward. But for me, the most important thing was that I, I had an opportunity to, to work on an animal that really needs our help. And the fact that I was working on Baird's tapir, which, which is a, a very, very endangered species, meant that I got to go to incredibly remote parts of a, a, a very inhospitable landscape and have all kinds of fantastic adventures in search of tapir, even though the tapir itself isn't necessarily quite as dangerous as, as you might have thought I would, I would look for in an animal. In all of your travels and all of the amazing things and animals that you've seen and experiences, what is your take or outlook on many of the world's major conservation issues and, and climate change? And are you feeling more hopeful? How does this work impact your, your outlook on the future of our environment? Yeah, very good question. So 
the thing that I think this show tries to deliver, the, me- the message that this show tries to deliver is that the world is not ours alone. It is ours to share. And we need to start behaving like that. And throughout all of my, my travels and my research as a biologist, this is what I've come to realize, is that we are, as human beings, we are taking over more and more of the world as if it is ours. And we're not sharing it with the species that, that we do share this planet with. And that is a terrible indictment on our species, that we are crippling the livelihoods of so many other animals through our own population expansion, through our own agricultural expansion, through the industrialization and urbanization of, of pristine habitats. And I think that's, that's a terrible thing. But something that I'm really, really heartened by is that this younger generation of, of, of people, not just scientists, but people in general, are very, very aware of environmental issues. They understand the threat of climate change. They understand that biodiversity also deserves a home in the world, and they want to preserve it. Now, all I hope is that these terrible hawks currently running the world do not destroy the planet before these young, environmentally-minded people are able to take over and, and undo all of the damage that has been done by the people over the last 50 years or so. Thank you. And in closing, what's next for you, and will you climb... Mount Everest, and what's it like flying, paragliding? <laughs> what's next for me? I don't know. It's, it's kind of interesting time at the moment. Now that I've finished my PhD, I'm currently negotiating my ongoing relationship with Cardiff University, which I hope will mean that I get to do bits of lecturing and maybe run a field course for the, for the undergraduate students. And of course, I'd love to carry on making more, more wildlife documentary programs. We, we would love to have a third season of Biggest and Baddest, and I'd love to work on, on various other projects. I combine my love for nature with my love for adventure. But then there's always my other little adventure projects. I've only just recently got back from a mountaineering and speed flying expedition in the Alps in, in France. Because speed flying is my new thing. It's like paragliding, except it's, you use a very, very tiny parachute instead of a very large parachute. So when you take off, instead of soaring around serenely and enjoying the environment, you are plummeting off that mountain. And I absolutely love it. And I'm trying to incorporate speed flying into as many of my, my trips as I possibly can. And who knows what the future will hold in terms of, of adventures. I would still love to climb Mount Everest. I would love to get to the South Pole. But there's so many other things to do out there. I don't know how much time I've got. We'll just have to see what I can squeeze in. If only we had more than one lifetime. Yeah, no kidding. If you have time, I just want to ask you one more question about what you've learned from these animals and what they've taught you about evolution, physiology, and it sounds like you've also mimicked some of the amazing abilities of animals such as flying. <laughs> yeah, I've still got a long way to go when it comes to mastering the art of flight. I, I love watching birds fly because it just reminds me how terrible I am at it whenever I'm, I'm underneath my, my speed wing. I, it, it's been an absolute privilege working as a biologist, getting to understand the processes that, that have driven the evolution of all of these species, getting to understand what it is about their physiological adaptations that enables them to adapt to different environments and survive different environments. I've, I've loved learning about the interconnectedness of, of species and, and how the world really does operate as a kind of giant super organism. And if you take out one piece, that's likely to create an effect somewhere else. So what we're doing in 
removing the world's planets, sorry, sorry, removing the world's forests and extirpating the world's species is going to have a knock-on effect and we will feel the negative consequences of that in the future. And I think as guardians of, of the world, which we are self-appointed guardians, it is our moral responsibility to maintain as much biodiversity as we possibly can in the future. Dr. McCann, thank you so much. Congratulations on your PhD and the show and your adventures. Best of luck and be safe. <laughs> That's what everyone says. Yeah. Be safe within reason because life's a lot more fun if you're not that safe. That was biologist, adventurer, TV star, Niall McCann. Thanks for listening. Sherry Quinn, Access Utah. What was the happiest moment in your life and why? How do you want to be remembered? Has your life been different than what you might have imagined? What are your dreams for me? What questions have you always wanted to ask? I'm Dave Isay, founder of StoryCorps. Record a conversation with someone you love when our mobile recording booth comes to town. Join us in July at the Uinta County Library in Vernal. Utah Public Radio will begin taking reservations on June 18th. Details at upr.org. I know one doctor who still makes house calls. Join us every week for Zorba Pastor on Your Health. You'll get great lifestyle tips and a tasty recipe for hobo packets. We always have a great time. So will you on Zorba Pastor on Your Health from PRI, Public Radio International. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Welcome to Science Questions. This is Sherry Quinn. The universe is so massive and so old, it's difficult to comprehend its enormous size and age. Scientists estimate that the universe was created 12 to 15 billion years ago in a single violent event known as the Big Bang. It was this event that evolved an extremely small, dense, and hot universe into this seemingly endless one. The great distances between the sun, stars, and planets in the solar system fascinated a very young boy, inspiring him to become a physicist. That small child grew up to be one of the most prominent and popular physicists of our time. Dr. Kip Thorne was born in Logan, Utah, where he was initially intrigued, gazing up into the sky. He received a BS degree from Caltech in 1962 and his PhD from Princeton University in 1965. Thorne has received numerous awards for his work and for his writings. He currently teaches theoretical physics at Caltech University. So I grew up in Logan. When I was small, I thought the most glorious job in the world would be to be a snowplow driver, because in 1948 we had tremendous snows, and I remember the snow being piled up to a height that was three times higher than I was tall, and the snowplow being able to push that around was wonderful. And uh, shortly thereafter, at age eight, uh, I went to a lecture about astronomy, about the solar system, at, uh, at the Fifth Ward Church in Logan uh, by a professor from the university, and I fell in love with astronomy and decided I wanted to be an astronomer. Then a few years later, I read books by a man named George Gamow about relativity, decided I wanted to be a relativity theorist. So I'm a relativity theorist who works in astronomy. 
But all, all of that came from my childhood growing up in Logan. My mother, uh, Alison Thorne, uh, did projects with me. When I got fascinated by astronomy, she went out with me out to, uh, in front of the house, and we drove a picture of the sun four feet in diameter on the, on the corner sidewalk and then started uh, to scale, drawing the planets in the solar system and their distances from the sun. And uh, when I discovered that Pluto was out in North Logan, the farthest planet from the sun, that was, I've never forgotten uh, how big the stretches of interplanetary space are. To get from a four-foot sun to Pluto in North Logan was, uh, was quite a stretch. <laughs> What are your ideas about the origins of the universe? We know that the universe began in a Big Bang explosion. It's not just that theory tells us this. There is very extensive uh, observational evidence. You look out and you see distant galaxies moving away from, from the Earth. You look out and you see uh, radiation, electromagnetic radiation, microwaves that they are, that were produced in the Big Bang, just filling the universe. So the challenge is to understand the details of the big beginning of the Big Bang. What created the universe? What were the laws, the fundamental laws of physics that governed the creation of the universe? How were space and time born? How was matter born at the beginning of the universe? Are there other universes? Um, can new universes be created inside black holes? These kinds of questions are big questions for physics in the coming century. And they're questions where, for which we know that the answers uh, will require understanding a set of fundamental laws of nature that we don't yet understand, laws called the laws of quantum gravity. These laws are a marriage or unification of two previously known uh, sets of laws the laws of warped space-time from Einstein and the laws of quantum physics, which uh, govern atoms and molecules and lasers. We don't know how those laws get unified. We don't know how, what happens when you have some phenomenon like the birth of the universe where both laws must act, both kinds of laws must act simultaneously and together in a unified way. We don't know what the, those, how those laws behave under those circumstances. The quest to understand that is the quest then for quantum gravity, the quest for the laws of quantum gravity, is the key to the 21st century solution of the puzzle of how the universe was born and whether there may be other universes. Can you talk a little bit about your research on black holes? And first, can you define what, what it means? So a black hole is an object that is not made from matter like you or I or anything we've ever seen, but instead it's made from warped space and warped time. So that, for example, this, this, and this object has a shape. It uh, has a shape, something, something like a sphere or maybe a pumpkin. Uh, and uh, if you were to measure the circumference around it and that circumference, if it came out to be something like 30 feet, then if you were to measure the diameter, uh, the Euclid's laws of geometry say that the diameter should be 30 feet divided by pi. And uh, so that diameter uh, should be approximately uh, 10 feet. 
And if you were to go in and actually measure the diameter, the diameter would be many, uh, many miles. And so space is really warped. The, the diameter is huge compared to the circumference. That just doesn't happen in ordinary space. Time is extremely warped around a black hole. When you go down near the black hole, time slows down. So time is moving very slowly down there compared to uh, out far away. And if you uh, go inside the black hole, time actually twists around and moves in a direction that you would have thought was a space direction. It moves toward the center of the black hole, is the direction of flow of time. So because you and I can only move forward in time, there's no way for us to move backward in time, we get dragged to the center of a black hole. A light beam can only move forward in time, so it gets dragged to the center of a black hole, which is why nothing can get out of a black hole, uh, because the direction of the future of time inside the black hole is downward. Nothing can come up. Uh, so black hole is, is an object made of warped space and warped time down which things can fall and out of which nothing can ever come. What is your primary area of interest? What is it about our universe that you find the most fascinating? Well, the challenge that I've been working on for the last uh, 20 years is my primary challenge is to develop the tools to be able to watch black holes collide, to be develop the tools to be able to measure the warpage of space and time around a black hole, to be able to make maps of uh, the curved space-time. And since the nearest black hole is very, very far away, we can't do that by bringing the black hole into the laboratory and, and making those measurements. The nearest black hole is probably a hundred light-years from Earth. So it, it, you'd get in a spaceship and we would, uh, the speed of light would take a hundred years to get there and a hundred years to get back. So we're not going to do this here. We have to do it by means of some kind of uh, radiation that is produced by black holes that uh, would carry encoded in itself detailed maps of uh, the warped space and time around the black hole. Some sort of radiation that uh, would be produced when two black holes collide, come crashing together, that uh, would carry in itself a picture of that uh, collision. Now, since black holes aren't made of matter, they can't produce uh, electromagnetic waves, no radio waves, no light, no x-rays, no heat even. The only kind of radiation they can produce is radiation made of the same thing as they are made from, which is warped space and time. So what uh, I've been involved in is developing uh, new kinds of telescopes that uh, look at not at light or x-rays or radio waves, but rather look at waves that are made from warped space and warped time, very, very weak waves that should be passing through the Earth and that were produced by things like colliding black holes in the distant universe. So it's an attempt, it's a project, it's a long-term project to convert this uh, study of black holes from something that is pure theory where we work with Einstein's equations and figure out what a black hole ought to be like into something that is observation so we can actually see what a black hole is really like. How did we find out that black holes existed? Black holes were predicted to exist by Einstein's uh, law, fundamental laws of physics, his laws that govern the warped space and warped time. These laws are called the laws of general relativity. 
And a man named J. Robert Oppenheimer in 1939 used those laws, uh, examined them, and saw that they predicted black holes. Uh, Oppenheimer went on a few years later to be the leader of the uh, uh, American effort to build the atomic bomb uh, in, world, in the midst of World War II. Einstein himself, who formulated the laws, didn't believe Oppenheimer's uh, predictions. And uh, it was a mark of, of how hard it was to understand what the mathematics was saying when you manipulated Einstein's mathematics, that Einstein himself didn't understand what his mathematics was saying, but Oppenheimer actually did. Um, so the black holes were predicted by Einstein's mathematical laws in 1939. We only began to develop good enough technology to see whether they exist or not, astronomically, uh, in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. And by now we know they exist because we see uh, gas uh, falling into them. Uh, black holes very far, very far from Earth. Gas from uh, interstellar space or gas from some companion star being torn off some companion star falling toward a black hole heats up and emits radiation which we can see with optical and x-ray telescopes. And so we see the evidence that the black holes are there, but uh, this gas does not bring us any kind of picture, of uh, no detailed picture of the space warpage and the time warpage around the black hole. So that's the challenge now, is to get those pictures, which we can only get through the new kind of radiation. The things we can learn from studying these black holes, how will it um, improve our knowledge of the universe and what kind of tangible things can you derive from it? So the study of black holes uh, in, in large measure it's simply our attempt to understand the universe around us. We live in a universe that is far more bizarre and rich than uh, people ever imagined 20, 30, 40 years ago and this is one, one feature of the universe that there is a huge black hole at the center of our galaxy, our Milky Way galaxy. We now know that weighs about three million times what the sun weighs, that uh, uh, material is all the time falling into, and this black hole is getting bigger as material falls into it. Fortunately, it'll never get big enough to swallow the Earth, but, uh, but it grows. And, and so appreciating the nature of the universe around us is a big part of this. As a byproduct, of course, there's also that the technology that we build in order to be able to do these studies is technology that generally turns out to have a, an impact on everyday life later, some years later. The, for this uh, project to build gravitational wave detectors, we call them, the detectors to see the ripples of uh, warped space and time produced when black holes collide, this technology involves using laser beams to measure uh, the motions of uh, sapphire uh, crystals uh, in, an, in a high-precision instrument. We needed laser beams whose color, whose light color was absolutely pure. Laser beams that had, whose frequency of oscillation of the light uh, was extremely monochromatic, not changing with time. 
Uh, at the time that uh, we embarked on this project, there were claims by physicists that it would be impossible to make a laser beam more stable in its frequency than a certain, a certain amount. And there were proofs, mathematical proofs in the literature, uh, science literature uh, of this. So Ronald Drever, who is one of the co-founders of this so-called LIGO project that we are working on, gravitational wave project, Ron Drever, in fact, invented a t new technique to stabilize lasers, make the li laser light much more monochromatic, much more stable. Uh, he invented a new technique that underlies our project, but that now is widely used in modern technology uh, when people want to get very stable light uh, in a variety of different areas of modern technology. They use this technique that was invented on this project. So, so our efforts, in fact, have technological fallout payoff in a variety of different different areas that will impact everyday life. But. Uh, we ourselves are driven not by the desire to have that happen, but rather by the desire to understand the universe around us. Do you find that are there a lot of surprises, and do you feel like there's still you're still going to find lots of um, learn lots of new things? Physics is continuing to move very rapidly with the with major new discoveries. Perhaps one of the most interesting ones is uh, the discovery in the last several years that approximately 70% of all the mass in the universe is made not from the kind of matter you and I are made from and not made from space-time warpage, but made from some weird kind of matter that has an enormous tension in it, like uh, the tension in a rubber band that fills the universe. It's some exotic form of matter that fills the universe and through this tension, almost paradoxically, it causes the expansion of the universe to in, uh, increase its speed. And uh, the uh, discovery of this was is mind-boggling for physicists who thought they understood what the universe was made from. And now there's some new kind of something there in the universe that in fact is dominant. Seventy percent of all the mass in the universe is in this new form that we just uh, didn't know it existed before. And the struggle to understand just what it is is one of the big struggles uh, the physicists will have, physicists and astronomers will have over the next uh, decade or two. So discoveries like that that completely change the way we think about uh, pieces of uh, physics are continuing to happen. ask about time travel. <laughs> Do you think time travel is possible and if so, when will, when will that point be reached? We do know quite certainly that it's possible, if you have good enough technology, to move forward in time more or less as fast as you want. So that uh, you could uh, get in a time machine now and uh, after about one hour is measured by you and your body, your physiological time, you could emerge and the rest of the universe would have aged by a million years. That's certainly possible. And uh, we can even uh, describe how to build time machines that would do that if we had the technology. We also know that the technology is 
so far beyond our current ability that it is not imaginable how long it will take for us to get that technology. It's, it's, it's uh, not centuries, it's millennia until we'll have that technology. What we don't know is whether it's possible to travel backward in time. And my personal guess is that the fundamental laws of physics prevent us from traveling backward in time. Together with a, a student of mine, a postdoctoral student, I have uh, found a mechanism that seems to be universal that uh, would appear to make any time machine self-destruct at the moment you try to activate it. Uh, so you go in your time machine, you pull the handle, you're going to go backward in time, and the whole thing blows up and you're dead. And this mechanism seems to be universal. It, is, it appears that it may cause t any time machine to self-destruct when you try to activate it, but we don't know for sure because the destruction is governed by these laws of quantum gravity that we don't yet have, have a mastery of. And... Uh, so that's another question that we can't answer for sure until we have these laws of quantum gravity in our hands. But my guess is then that uh, if uh, we had the technology for to build time machines, you could happily get in a time machine and go forward a million years in a, one hour of your time. Uh, but when you try to get back in and go back to where you came from, uh, you couldn't do it. Wormholes are prevalent in science fiction literature, movies, and television shows. But do they really exist? I asked Dr. Thorne to explain. Wormholes uh, are hypothetical uh, objects that are made from warped space that enable you to go into one mouth of the wormhole here in this room in Salt Lake City and emerge from the other mouth the moment later, uh, which might be in Los Angeles or might be on the other side of our galaxy. This wormhole mouths uh, would be more or less spherical, uh, like a black hole or like the Earth or like a crystal ball. And you would just go into this sphere uh, through the surface of the crystal ball. It's uh, not made of crystal. The wormhole is made of warped space and you go through and find yourself in a tunnel that reaches uh, from Salt Lake City to Los Angeles or to the other side of the galaxy. Wormholes are permitted by Einstein's laws of space-time warpage uh, by themselves. But when you look at what those laws of space-time warpage say, they say that in order to hold a wormhole open so you can actually travel through it, you have to put into the throat of the wormhole, into the interior of the wormhole, you have to put in there a form of matter that is very different from the matter that we have here on Earth or any kind of matter we've ever encountered. It has to be a form of matter that has an enormous tension, a tension that is even bigger than the tension that we see in the matter that, that uh, fills 70% of the universe, that makes up 70% of the mass of the universe. We don't know whether this super exotic matter can exist. Uh, the laws that govern whether it can exist are the laws of quantum physics. We have not yet mastered the laws of quantum physics well enough to know uh, for sure whether this super exotic matter can exist. 
So until we know that, we can't know whether a wormhole can be held open long enough for some, somebody to travel through it. And this is one of the quests of physicists these days, is to try to master the laws of quantum physics well enough to know whether super exotic matter can exist and thereby know whether wormholes can be held open. Wormholes uh, have now become a standard staple of uh, television fare and, uh, and Hollywood movies. You see them in the movie Contact. You see them in, in Star Trek and a number of other uh, shows. These wormholes uh, actually did arise. They came originally out of science uh, they, because they are predicted by Einstein's uh, laws of general relativity. As far as Hollywood is concerned, they exist and uh, Hollywood depicts them. Uh, but as I say, we need to understand the laws of physics better in order to know for sure whether they are, are allowed. What is your advice to someone who wants to go into astrophysics and physics and um, how has the field, how has it changed within the past 20 years? What, what are the jobs available? For the last 20 years, uh, there has been a job glut, or a lack of jobs in physics and astrophysics uh, in the United States. We have been training physicists, uh, and they have been leaving this field after being trained. They leave this field to do wonderful other things. I trained a, a young man in relativity theory. He did a PhD in relativity, and he used the technical tools that he had learned and his uh, mastery of, of technology and science. In business, in the business world, he founded a company called Global Crossing, which uh, went uh, from the time of its birth to two years later being worth $30 billion. And it is carrying the optical fiber communications between the 50 largest cities in the world, uh, a very large fraction of them. So. Uh, training in physics is a foundation for moving in a variety of uh, directions in technology uh, in the business world. But because of the la this lack of opportunity for staying in physics, uh, lar large numbers of the people that we have trained have chosen to or even been forced to move in other directions. That is ceasing to be true. The uh, job market uh, in the sciences fluctuates. And in physics, uh, the need for physicists is uh, on the verge of starting to outstrip our production of uh, young new physicists. And so in physics and, and astrophysics, I see a period over the next uh, 10 to 20 years when uh, there will be a lot more opportunity than there has been. For people who uh, are very talented, uh, it doesn't matter what the job situation is, uh, the opportunities are there just by virtue of what they're able to contribute, what they're able to do. The uh, challenges in theoretical physics, in astrophysics, in experimental physics change fairly rapidly as technology marches forward, as we solve new problems and the new problems open up new puzzles. And so, in fact, the problems that we are working on today are quite different from the problems we were working on when I became a physicist. When I became a physicist, the study of black holes was entirely a theoretical uh, enterprise. Today, all the work on black holes is geared toward observational studies, either building uh, gravitational wave telescopes or using electromagnetic waves to probe the roles of black holes in the universe. So a huge change in the nature of the research over, over these years. 
as happens in biology and, and any other field of science. That was Dr. Kip Thorne, the Feynman Professor of Theoretical Physics at Caltech and author of Black Holes and Time Warps, Einstein's Outrageous Legacy. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn about the early days of motoring, when traveling by automobile was all about adventure. First this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. America's love affair with the automobile began with young men like Alva Matheson. Born in Cedar City in 1903, Alva Matheson began hankering for a car at age 15. He had no money, but was clever and knew how an engine worked. He built a car of his own from discarded parts collected at the dump. When it was finished, he recalled, I had eight different models represented, such as a Ford motor, a Buick ignition, a Chevrolet oil pump, a Star radiator, Franklin front springs, a Briscoe rear end, Dort clutch, and a Studebaker drive shaft. Matheson's creation was apparently a sight to behold, a terror on the road, and marked only the beginning of his automotive adventures. When Matheson later owned a Model T Ford, he set off one day with his friend Jeff on an old wagon road toward the Nevada border. Washouts, high centers, and deep dust were the hallmarks of such backcountry roads. Of course, the car threw a rod and began to leak oil. Hoping for a rescue, the pair pulled out their lunch of salt pork, eggs, beans, and bread. As Matheson cut the pork, he noticed how tough the rind was. So he set to work with his wrenches and made a connecting rod bearing from the bacon rind, a wrangled repair that held all the way home. Matheson's vehicle had a tendency to lose oil on remote roads. The next time he and Jeff were stranded 30 miles from nowhere, they replaced the oil with Castile soap dissolved in hot water. Matheson reported that, by coasting whenever possible and blowing bubbles for miles, we made it back to town with the cleanest motor on record. Alva Matheson was not the only adventurer on Utah's dirt roads in the early years of motoring, but he and his pals were certainly ever inventive. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by the Utah Division of State History. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. Thank you for listening to Access Utah today. Now for some Utah stories during the hour. On Saturday, families gathered in Willow Park in Logan for the 14th annual Bear River Celebration and Free Fish Day, where children and families could learn about nature. UPR's Christopher Campbell tells us more. Rub all over that fish and you got to rub down. Children painted fish with rubber stencils, made beavers out of rocks, and even threw balls into bins to learn how to recycle at the 14th annual Bear River Celebration, which highlights all the things that a healthy watershed provides. Sam Saltern, who played the basketball game, says recycling's important. Because if you don't recycle, the whole world would be garbage. A band played music while children and families were free to walk around to different attractions that were set up at booths. Visitors could get their bags stamped at each place. Whoever went to every station could get a free hat. 
People from water and wildlife groups came to the event to educate children and families. One of them was Peter Ferguson from Stokes Nature Center, who brought parts of animals for children to touch, such as an antelope horn, an eagle talon, and skin from a snake named Gonzo. Ferguson says he would like to get kids interested enough to one day either become naturalists or to just appreciate nature. We all need to be stewards of nature, so we need to take care of it, and the best way to take care of it is, care of it is if you actually learn about it, know about it, start being interested in it, start caring about it. That's a tortoise eating an apple. People from the Ogden Nature Center, including Shawnee Sawyer, brought him to the event to educate people about tortoises. Sawyer says the more people know about animals like the tortoise, the more desire they'll have to care for them. I think when it comes to endangered species, people like to think of nice, fluffy, cute things, and you don't really think of a tortoise as something you want to save or protect. But they're really important to uh, the environment and uh, the habitat, so we want to make sure that we protect them, and they're really cool. More bait? Where's your pole at? Just off the park by the pond, poles were provided for people to try catching trout as part of the state's free fish day. Robert Holloway sat by the pond with his son Kyle, who was attempting to hook a fish. Robert says he likes that this event caters to families. I think it's a good activity for families to come out and just to relax and enjoy being together and bonding. And fishing. Yep. Utah Water Quality Extension Specialist Nancy Messner, who headed the event, says Free Fish Day relates to the Bear River celebration in that the event is a celebration of the watershed, which sustains the fish. With Utah Public Radio News, I'm Christopher Campbell. Training police officers, not so easy. If you can't go, you can offer to trade. If that is rejected, it goes to the next person automatically. I'm Molly Wood, finding a new way to train police officers. Next time on Marketplace from APM. Friday night at 7 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.